Hello, and welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand, where we talk to real people who have overcome real challenges and are making our world better because of it. They have taken life's lemons and are making lemonade. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand. I am so looking forward to getting to know you and hearing your story. So start out by telling me just a couple of things about yourself first. Thank you, Heidi, for the invitation to participate and be part of your podcast. Just a little introduction about myself. I first am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am a married man, have been married for a little over 50 years to the same woman. And I think that's an important part of my story because my story uh, involves betrayal. And so by miracles, my wife has chosen to stay with me and we've chosen to work together on the challenges that we both face. I am a musician and have never been a musician from the standpoint of trying to make a living that way, but it's a big part of my life and a big part of my family's life. We enjoy music as a family. We we uh, do a lot of music. I have seven children. They're all married. I have 29 grandchildren. My oldest is about 24, and my youngest is about five weeks old. So we have a, a lot of uh, activities with family. We get together often, as often as we can, but we're spread out all over the world now. I have one daughter and her husband and family are living in the Republic of Georgia. They're the furthest away. have uh, grandsons on missions out of the country. And kids spread out uh, in various places in various states. And so when we get together, it's a great opportunity to just share our love for each other and celebrate and do music. From a business perspective, I've been a businessman primarily in sales and marketing. And commercial real estate has been part of my life, development of commercial real estate, and I've enjoyed that a lot. So, and my wife and I enjoy when we can an opportunity to travel. So that's just a tiny bit about me, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like living the dream. So I love that. <laughs> I've got six grandkids and I don't know if I'll ever get to 24. So that's that's a beautiful gift. I love that. Thank All you. right. So you got more to share. You got to take me back and tell me this lemon to lemonade story. My story is I I'm grateful to have been part of a wonderful family as a little boy. I was born to great parents and working hard parents who love the Lord. And I was taught well by example, by my parents. To really bring my story into focus here from uh, lemons to lemonade, I was introduced to pornography accidentally when I was six years old. I've, and that was many years ago, that was 1958. Pornographic material was available in magazines and it had to work hard to come by one. Well. I found one in my brother's chest of drawers. Uh, my brother's nine years older than I am. And so he had a magazine that he had hidden away, and I was going through his stuff, which I shouldn't have been, but I was not looking for anything in particular, but I found this magazine. So I looked at it, and I remember the experience being uh, exhilarating, even magical in some ways, mystical. But I also knew that what 
I was participating in was wrong. I, I looked at the whole magazine, knew, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. I know that this isn't right. And so I took the magazine and gave it to my mother. That's all that I remember of that experience. I don't remember her saying anything to me about it. But I was so drawn to what I had experienced that thereafter, I, I, I would look for porno, pornographic material in various places. And so I sought it out. And knowing that uh, it was something that gave me um, an experience that was thrilling, that I just continued to use, use it whenever I could find it. And as a little person, that's pretty hard to do sometimes. In my very early teenage years, in fact, I think just before I was a teenager at about age 12, I was introduced by a friend to the idea of masturbation. And so I, I, I figured it out and then I combined pornographic materials with masturbation. And I was really hooked. And I, I, uh, by age 14, I determined, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this. And that's when I really began to make an effort to stop. And so I, uh, I tried on my own. I didn't really talk to my parents about it. I didn't talk to church leaders about it. I acknowledged it to some friends, participated in the behavior of looking at porn with some friends. But I just tried to stop on my own. I didn't seek real help. And it wasn't until I was about 18 that I really made a, a really strong and true confession and made the effort to stop. And I did stop for a time, but then I went back to it. The challenge was I had progressed beyond pornographic material and masturbation to inappropriate relationships with girls in high school. And I thus didn't feel like I was worthy to serve a mission. So I didn't serve a mission. But I, I really made an effort to repent. And I was on that pathway to repent of behaviors that I knew were immoral and wrong. And certainly that was my belief system. One of the things about me is I'm grateful to say that I've never felt like I didn't believe in the basic plan of salvation. In fact, I have always been a believer and I felt myself to be on earth for a purpose and that God knows me. So I didn't have a problem with my, I, with my I'll, I'll use the word testimony, that this life has an important meaning and that God is real and the Savior is real. So I was blessed with that knowledge and understanding and testimony. So I was trying to do better. I would start and then I would stop and I would start and I would stop. Um, started into college, decided that uh, because of the company I was working for at the time, just part-time, they wanted me to work for them full-time, talked me into leaving college, which I did, and went and they transferred me to Montana and a little town of Bozeman at that point. And went to church and found my wife. It was kind of an incredible situation. I think God's hand was in my opportunity to meet my wife. Her name is Rill, kind of an unusual name and an unusual and powerful, wonderful person. She has a strong testimony, did then and does now. And I think that's been a critical part of our ability to stay together through really difficult times. So all of this that I'm just rehearsing were a part of my life that I didn't recognize as an addiction. I had no thought of that being the case. I didn't realize that the start-stop behavior and continuing the behavior in spite of negative consequences would have any relationship to addiction. I didn't know that. And frankly, there's, as far as I know, no one that I had ever spoken to about my issues knew that I was dealing with an addiction. At that point, something that I just felt like was a weakness and a, and a moral challenge that I 
that I had to deal with on my own. I felt like marriage would solve my problem. So I determined that I would not talk to my fiance, real at that time, about my past experiences with sexual behavior. So she didn't really understand anything about my past behaviors. We, she came into the marriage thinking that I was fully worthy of all of the blessings. And that's a common thing now that I understand more about this issue. And I've worked with thousands of people who want to, to not just stop the behavior, but live in recovery. And as I've worked with these people, it's pretty universal. The feeling that getting married is going to change the way I feel about uh, acting out sexually uh, with pornography or masturbation or in other ways. The truth is that is not the case. Marriage doesn't help stop behavior. It actually, in, because of the added responsibilities and challenges of marriage, it sometimes adds fuel to the challenges of acting out uh, sexually, with, especially with pornography and masturbation. That is true. I didn't understand that. So shortly after we were married, just a few months later, I was uh, back to porn and masturbation. Didn't talk to anybody about it. My work put me on the road. So I was, I traveled and I traveled by myself. And, it, and at some point, not long after we were married, I would say within the first two years, I uh, discovered adult establishments. So in my travels, I would visit an adult establishment. The common term for an adult establishment is a, um, a strip club. And that was the beginnings of really a serious downhill slide over a period of many years, uh, by the time I was in my mid-30s, I had progressed all the way to acting out with prostitutes. And the very uh, difficult and sad part of my story is that I was very uh, adept at hiding my behavior. So no one knew that I was acting out. I was living a total double life. When I was home, I was a father and a husband, a church man. And when I was on the road, I was acting out with porn, masturbation, adult establishments, and eventually to pro with prostitutes. It was taking a serious toll on how I felt about myself and my energy levels. Uh, I was oftentimes needing to lie because of uh, where I was and what I was doing, so I wasn't telling the truth to hide my behaviors. Um, so at age 36, I finally came to myself to the degree that says this has to stop. It became apparent that I had to stop that it, because of the degree that it had progressed. I confessed. I confessed to my wife for the first time. That's the first time she'd ever heard of this. The first time my church leaders had ever heard of it. And their consequences were significant. A real chose to stay with me, and it was very difficult for her. At that point, she experienced betrayal trauma. She had no idea what that was. I had no idea what that was. No one else understood what that was. And so she suffered the trauma of my betrayals without any help. I didn't understand I was dealing with an addiction, and no one knew that I was dealing with an addiction. It was said to both my wife and myself to not look back and um, just move forward. And you're good people. You've got a lot of great things in your lives to be thankful for. Put this behind you and move forward. Well, that was what I really felt like I should do, and my wife chose to do that as well. And this idea to put it behind us, it was supposed to not even be spoken of. That was the advice that we were given. And it was done in a loving way, and I think with very good intentions. But that's exactly the wrong approach to this issue. 
it has to be dealt with in and it can't recovery is not going to happen in a, in isolation and that's what i tried to do i went three years without behavior and then i went back to the behavior not understanding that i was dealing with an addiction my wife dealing with trauma not understanding she was dealing with trauma and here we were and the question really was how are we going to do this what well, was just going to be do what we were told to do and that's move forward well after three years and when i went back to the behavior i was filled with fear thinking that i didn't want to talk about it i just felt like i needed to stop on my own which i really tried to do i made huge attempts at doing that but uh was unsuccessful and then i continued in the behavior hiding it for another seven years so at that point i'm in my uh, you know about 47 years old and again during doing a very living a very double life and the consequences of this i think need to be the challenges that i faced living the double life was my disconnection from my family especially my wife in order to protect myself and living this double life and hypocrisy, I disconnected from her. I disconnected from my children. I went through the motions of being a husband and father. I went through the motions of being a church man. I really was not invested because the more I invested myself, the more I felt the hypocrisy. That's a very serious part and, and consequence of living the double life living in the addiction is there's this hiding double life disconnection from God and others and it really changes quality of life that's one of the major losses that I have had in my life with this addiction is not having the connection with my wife and children for a significant period of time where I was really disconnected and unavailable didn't have the blessings of what that what those relationships should have been in my life well, the tough part about my story is I, you know, 10 years after the first disclosure, I came forward again. This time, again, a full disclosure and a complete com commitment to change my life. The idea of addiction or the concept of addiction was introduced to me at that time, and I rejected it. That's a very important part of my story. And so for those who are listening, my the fact that I chose to come forward, that was the right thing. To chose to be honest, that was the right thing. The wrong thing was I failed to really look at myself correctly and was willing to look at myself from the standpoint of why do I continue in this behavior in spite of the negative consequences. The idea of addiction was introduced by a therapist. I actually went to four 12-step meetings and I said, I'm not an addict. I won't participate in the work of recovery in a 12-step program or I, I will go to a therapist, but I'm, that's going to be the extent of what I'll do. So that was my mindset. And my wife's mindset was she was going to do everything that she could to help me. And including reading the books, she found the therapist. She uh, she was doing things that I should have been doing on my own. She was doing things to help me that I should have been doing to help myself. And uh, But she chose to stay. That's a part of my story where a lot of people begin to question her. Why would she choose to stay with me in spite of my behaviors of betrayal? the the answer is she she really worked at understanding what what was right for her from her understanding of relationship with god and what he was telling her to do in in her righteous effort to be prayerful about it and she's a very strong and powerful personality and a very strong and uh, belief in god and so she was really reliant upon that in making the decision to stay 
And so it's I, her story is uh, is one of of working to care for her responsibility as a mother um, first, as a wife. I think she was really trying, but with the betrayal, it was very difficult for her to to be able to move forward in such a way as to begin to retrust, to trust again. And that's a very common problem with betrayal. But she was working at it and she tried and did a wonderful job in spite of all of the issues that she faced. So I, I will forever be grateful to her for her willingness to work at her own recovery and to stay committed to herself first and to God and to her family and ultimately uh, to the relationship. As difficult as it was, I I did some things that were important um, in my own recovery, like seeing a therapist. The unfortunate and downside was the therapist that we had really didn't understand sexual addiction, didn't understand how to help me understand that I needed to to look at my issues from a, from an addiction perspective and also from a trauma perspective, and there was really no help given to my wife at that time from trauma. So there we were. I was back to a commitment to working recovery. So I went for another three years. It's interesting, this whole three-year thing. Totally uh, abstinent from behavior, working to put my life together. Had a lot of energy in doing so. Uh, had some very positive things happen in business. But then I went back to the behavior, and I could go into how that happened. But I just slipped with pornography, and when I quote-unquote slipped or chose to go to pornography, I was afraid to acknowledge that, and I was on the slippery slope again, and down I went. And I went down quickly. So I said, to, I have to get off the road. What I'll do is I'll quit my job. I just flat quit my job. I didn't have another job. I sold my interest in the company. I moved my family. All of this was an effort to stop the behavior, so I began to run from the behavior but I was unwilling to talk about it or to get honest. People listen to this story and they, they, they wonder, what does it really take for a person to come to themselves? And for me, um, what it ultimately took is that I continued in the behavior for a, four more years after I had confessed for the second time. So this would now be seven years from the time that I had confessed the second time to uh, 2005. And so on August of 2005, I was arrested for picking up a prostitute. And that was a life-changing experience. It became the one of the most important events of my life to give me a chance to think about myself rightly. I was filled with incredible fear and shame. I was afraid to come forward. Uh, there's a story behind that. I won't go into the depth of the story, except to say that it, I was arrested, charged with loitering for purposes of prostitution. I went to an attorney. He said, you can get off if you didn't admit guilt. I said, I didn't admit guilt. There was no acting out with this person. I just, I picked this person up. And so he said, I can get you off, pay me $1,400. You'll never see me again. You'll never hear about this again. And that was true. But within the next two weeks, I was filled with such incredible fear that I couldn't live with myself. And it, it continued to increase to the point where it was debilitating. And on the night of September 11, 2005, I finally had what I would consider a powerful spiritual experience when I asked myself 
what can I do to deal with this fear of being caught again, losing everything? And I started to think, am I, I said, Stephen, do you believe in God? And I, I wanted to say to myself to escape the pain, no, I don't. Either I don't believe. So if I don't believe, then I'm going to escape the pain. Well, that lasted for a very short time. I couldn't deny that I was a believer, but I tried for a moment to see if I could get some relief. That didn't work. I, in fact, it kind of went the other direction. I came to the point where I said, how, you know, here I am fearing man more than God, living a double life, knowing how wrong all of my behaviors are. And so in the middle of the night, I finally came to myself and I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I will get honest. I will be honest about what's going on and I will take all of the consequences, likely being losing my family my wife, my family, my church membership, and my job. But frankly, that's what I'm going to have to go through because I can't do this anymore. That was the changing moment for me. I chose to get honest, and I said that I would get honest by 9 o'clock in the morning. That was actually September 11th is a Sunday morning. So I actually, at that moment that I made the decision, felt the power of what that decision meant, and relief actually came. Uh, the incredible pain subsided substantially and uh, courage grew. And so I followed through absolutely with my decision. I told my wife prior to nine o'clock, I told my wife, I need to talk to you. That's as far as I could go. Anyway, the, at that point, I, I, I was now turned in the other, I was turned away from the direction of the dark side, turned toward the light and everything fell into place for me at beginning at that moment, my heart literally had changed. I put myself into a situation where I was able to get some help. And I also, with that help, acknowledged that what I was dealing with was an addiction and that I needed to treat it that way. And as if I would treat it that way, I would be able to deal with it in healthy ways. My wife was then considering very strongly divorce, of course. Uh, my children were brought into this, uh, they were uh, adult children. Five of our children were adults and married. Two of them were teenagers. <clears throat> they had to be aware of what was going on. So I made them aware of what was going on. Uh, I told my wife all of what had been going on. I confessed all of what was going on. I lost my church membership, which I should have. So I was excommunicated from the church. Frankly, moved out of the house into a, an RV and back. And I began to live a different life. And I was incredibly motivated and incredibly blessed. Blessed in that I was led to resources. I was led to a, a, an honestly qualified therapist, someone who understood sexual addiction and understood trauma to a degree, at the, what, what was understood in 2005. And so... With that, I also committed myself to working a community-based 12-step program. It was actually SA, Sexologics Anonymous. And I found a sponsor that understood what I was dealing with because he had lived it, lived it. His story was very similar to mine. He was about my age. And the powerful thing about him in my life was he had six years of sobriety. And I was amazed to meet a person that had been through what I had been through, a very similar story and had sobriety. And I learned from him incredible things about what it means to work recovery and live in recovery. He was probably the best mentor that I could have had at the moment, at that moment in my life when I was essentially on the precipice 
of losing my marriage, and uh, I needed to work through the processes of dealing with addiction. Qualified therapy helped me, and the qualified therapy helped save the marriage, frankly. The therapist asked Rill a very important question that he was inspired to ask her. He became aware of my story, and the first meeting he listened, and then for some reason he turned to my wife and said, would you stay with him if he was in recovery? And that really was a strange question to ask of her at that time. Um, I didn't understand what recovery was, nor did she. And so her reaction was, you know, I have been betrayed over and over and over again. He lies. He's a very capable liar. And I honestly don't know what recovery is or what it looks like. How could I even consider staying? And his comment back to her was, uh, you will know. And in fact, that has happened. She's understood because of her work of recovery and my work of recovery, what addiction looks like and what recovery looks like. And so that turning point in September of 2005 was turning the lemons of my life into lemonade. It was a decision on my part to surrender completely to God's will and to acknowledge that I'm dealing with an addiction and what that means. And so this turning to lemonade was essentially turning to God for help with a humble heart and a willingness to do whatever it would take. So what it takes and what it takes for me, what it has taken for my wife, and what I now help people understand on my journey of recovery is that the only real uh, help comes from the power of God in a willingness to surrender my will to him. And the question is how to do it. Because most people who deal with this, they know that they need to stop. They just don't know how to surrender the power of, of the, the draw of the, of the addictive behavior. And so they, can, they continue trying on their own, mainly from a white-knuckle perspective. And generally, the prayer has been, and it was this for me, for people who don't understand this, the prayer is oftentimes, God, take this away from me. Just take this away. Take the, the strong compulsion that I have to act out away from me. And frankly, that prayer is not a correct prayer because we're asking God to take away our agency. And he's not going to do that. And so I began to learn and understand that the prayer is, God, help me understand the pathway to recovery, strengthen me in my efforts to do the recovery. And with these resources, please guide my path. And so that becomes the prayer. Guide my path. Strengthen me. Give me courage. Help me find the resources. And that's what happened. That's what happened for me. I found, as I mentioned, a great 12-step group, a wonderful sponsor, a qualified therapist. My wife stepped back, still considering divorce. She let me work my recovery. I was out of the house, and I've, I diligently prayed. I diligently studied the scriptures. I diligently worked the 12 steps. I did what the therapist asked me to do. And the consequence of that is I grew in my not just my understanding of how to stop the behavior, the real understanding was how to not start again. And so I learned, and over a period of about three years again, I came to the point, and Rill and I came to the point where we realized we had learned a lot. And so we began to think, is it going to be, 
should we share our story to help other people? And this is a big question a lot of people have when they get on the pathway to recovery. At what point should I share my recovery? And that's a serious question because too early is not is is not wise. Person needs to really understand recovery. And so at three years, we were actually invited to share our story, which I did. My wife was in school at BYU. She had a class she needed to give a presentation to, and I was invited to share my story to this class, which I did. That was the very beginning point of our foundation, SA Lifeline Foundation, where we recognized we could tell our story and help other people. That's a, there's, a, there's some danger in that because uh, those who begin to tell their story too early and then relapse, it becomes problematic for those that they're trying to help if they actually can't live the life that they are trying to teach of recovery. So that that's something that we had to recognize. We were invited to participate on a, a documentary that was put out by Deseret Media Corp called Out in the Light. We decided to tell our story to that degree publicly. And so it went out over the airwaves and in print. And we were also inspired to speak about what we were doing and the idea of starting a foundation began to gel. There's parts of that which we don't have time to go into. When we chose to pursue that path, we didn't understand what that meant, only that we would start something, a foundation, a nonprofit, to, to provide education and information to people who are in need of help to understand what they're dealing with and so that they don't have to make all the mistakes that we have made in trying to figure this thing out. The lemonade part is we have shared our story since then. We have learned through the processes of working on our own recovery and study and prayer and direction, really what recovery takes. And we have been able to participate in our own recovery and then in that process, help other people along the path. So the foundation is built on the idea of education. So we publish a number of books, uh, including a book called He Restoreth My Soul, uh, which was written by a neurosurgeon. We published that book and distributed it for him. We also publish a book called Understanding Pornography, Addiction, and Betrayal Trauma, a resource for LDS parents and leaders. That book is available online at our website. It's very descriptive in helping people understand addiction and trauma and recovery. My wife has written a book called What Can I Do About Me that has helped thousands of women understand what they're dealing with when it comes to trauma. Her book is widely read. With the foundation, at some point uh, about 10 years ago, we started the foundation 15 years ago. 10 years ago, we felt like it was important for us to start our own 12-step meetings. Uh, it's called SAL12Step. Online, it's sal12step.org. And it is a 12-step program. So we added 12-step to SA Lifeline is built on the idea of education and on the concept of education. Thus, we have two websites. One is education and one is 12-step. Those who work the 12-step program do it anonymously in groups that are autonomous. And we operate currently about 60 groups autonomously. We support them with principles of recovery and tenants and so these autonomous groups operate with uh, abiding by the principles as outlined by SA Lifeline. I continue to work my own recovery. I attend meetings at least once a week. I support many people 
uh, as a sponsor, helping them understand a pathway to recovery as my sponsor does now, and as my first sponsor did then. So this part of my life right now is a an important time for me to share my experience, strength, and hope for recovery, helping other people in their efforts of recovery to do everything that I can. My wife has joined me in this effort, as she did many years ago in working her own recovery. And so we've worked from that perspective, personal recovery, and also marriage recovery. And then we share our experience, strength, and hope wherever the opportunity comes about. In doing so, we've had an opportunity to meet thousands of incredible and wonderful people, which have enhanced our life immensely. At this point, I can say, Heidi, life is a miracle. I'm feeling incredibly blessed through the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, his grace, which is empowering. And what I've learned is if I'm willing, and I'll turn my heart to him, and I'm willing to be honest, that becomes critical, then turning lemons into lemonade happens through him and through his power and his grace, as long as I desire that and I'm willing to do my part, which is be honest. Mm. One key thing I got from this is your wife. Obviously, you know, this is what people are really concerned about is, you know, what you're doing to your spouse. And I love that she took her own way of recovery. She didn't own what you were doing. I mean, you know, there's a part of her, I'm sure, that did own it, but she knew that was your path and your problem and your thing you had to deal with. And she had to do her own path and her own recovery. And I think that's really key because I think when people are married, they kind of want to take on their spouse and their responsibilities and their addictions. And you can't do that. You have to let them do their own healing. And so I'm just, I just think it's a really critical point that you brought up that your wife had to do her own and she had to heal from her trauma as well. Yes. And that is a, that's a lesson that hopefully we can teach from the perspective of experience. I mentioned to you uh, how her experience was in trying to help me yeah. uh, created a circumstance where there was some resentment right? and her not understanding her need for her own recovery. So that's exactly the case, Heidi. Yeah. I'm responsible for my recovery. She's responsible for hers. Yeah. The big challenge comes in. We're responsible, but frankly, we didn't know what to do. and No one knows what to do. Right. I right. mean, it's you like, plan that. can't you figure this out faster? Well, I've asked myself that about a thousand times. Why would it take so long, so many heartache experiences, so much betrayal? so much pain. Why does it take all of that in order to finally figure things out? And I can tell you from experience in the many thousands that I've worked with, it's difficult to admit to myself and to others that I'm dealing with an addiction. And let me just speak to what that means. And so people don't get confused. Sexual addiction is really best described as a toxicity to lust. Toxicity to lust, and we live in a, an environment where, where there is exposure to lust circumstances everywhere. Okay. And it's so within one second, I can be experiencing pornography on my phone. Okay. As soon as that desire to go to that, to, a, to get a, a lust hit, the dopamine spike in my brain is dramatic. And once that's repeated over and over and over again, we learn how to cope with life by pursuing lust 
which gives us a heavy dopamine spike and we just go back to it in spite of all the negative consequences. I mean, it can be explained, but explaining it doesn't create a circumstance where a person is willing to deal with it from the, a really healthy work of recovery. And those who will look at this from the perspective and treat it from an addiction model will learn how to deal with it by surrendering my will to God to be empowered. And that requires total and absolute honesty with myself and others. That's the beginning of the pathway. Right. And then working the 12 steps, because that keeps you on that path long enough. Because it's so easy to be like, yeah, God's will. Okay, I'm good. And then a week later, you're falling into lust again. So you have to be on a program with a therapist, with a mentor, you know, all the things. All the things. And it's not a a cafeteria a la carte plan. You mentioned the 12 steps as being critical. It's a spiritual pathway. Right. Yeah. And it it absolutely works when I choose to work it. Many people have tried 12 steps. So it doesn't work for them. Well, that comment basically is I didn't really work it. Yep. It worked yep. for me when I chose to work it. Right. Don't skip. <laughs> don't don't right. try to rush ahead. Yeah. Right. You got to work it. Oh, amazing advice. Thank you. This is... Um, been very enlightening. And I am so appreciative of your vulnerability. I mean, that's one topic that people are not super open about. And I think you can help people as you share. And I just really appreciate you sharing your story and encouraging other people to be honest and get the help that they need. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be part of what you're doing in helping people. enjoyed spending this time with you. You might have a friend struggling with the same thing that we talked about in this episode that might enjoy listening to this too. So please share this episode because no one is alone at the lemonade stand.